Well, good morning, Grace Church. Thanks for watching again and worshiping together this way. In your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 41 or on your Bible apps. Please turn to Genesis 41. We are continuing in our series in the book of Genesis. He never touched her. The jacket he left behind only because he was getting away from her so suddenly. And she made up a different story. She said that he forced himself on her and that she was a victim. But it wasn't true. And he was thrown into prison for it. He's been set up. He was just trying to obey God, just trying to please God, just trying to do the right thing. And look where it got him. It wasn't as bad as what his brothers did to him. Granted, they sold him into slavery, but still, now he's in prison as a slave. An unjustly imprisoned slave. No justice appearing on the horizon to correct this injustice. No hope of change coming to change his circumstances. If this was you in these circumstances, how would you interpret this? What would be your perspective on that scenario? What would be the, the framework you would bring to understand it and, and process it? An old slogan goes, They said to me, smile. Things could be worse. So I did smile, and they did get worse. That's what happens here to the biblical character, Joseph. The chief cupbearer and chief baker of Pharaoh, high-ranking government officials in Egypt, they fall out of favor with Pharaoh, and they're put in the same prison with Joseph. Both have dreams. Both tell their dreams to Joseph, and Joseph tells them exactly what's going to happen. All Joseph asked, just one favor. Please remember me. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm unjustly imprisoned. Please remember me. But the cupbearer, the guy who gets out, forgets entirely about Joseph for two long years. Again, I ask you, how would you interpret this? What would be your perspective? If you were in Joseph's shoes, how would you make sense of all this? What would be your framework to understand it? That God had forgotten you? That God was mistreating you? That God was no longer with you? Or that God was punishing you, perhaps, for your sins? Or maybe that God's promises just didn't apply to your life anymore? Or perhaps, worst of all, that God wasn't who He said He was? That God wasn't at least who you thought he was. Some of those interpretations have to be going through Joseph's mind, and some of them are going through your mind. Or they will. Look, you name the situation. You name the difficult circumstance. And it's a battle to have the right interpretation. You name the trial, and it's a fight for the right perspective. And Joseph's life has something to say to us about the interpretation, about the perspective that we must have. Here's what happens next. Genesis 41. Pick it up in verse 1. 
after two whole years of Joseph languishing in prison. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. Then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk, and behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ear swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one, there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So the Egyptian pharaoh dreams a pair of dreams. Seven plump cows are eaten up by seven thin, ugly cows, literally evil-looking cows. And then seven plump ears of grain are swallowed up by seven thin ears of grain. And Pharaoh calls all the wise men of Egypt, help me understand this, help me interpret this, but no one can interpret his dreams. And then at just that exact moment, at just the right moment, the chief cupbearer says in verse 9, I remember my offenses today. He remembers Joseph. And he tells Pharaoh about Joseph. Joseph is summoned out of prison. There's a flurry of activity. And then he's brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, the imprisoned Hebrew slave, I have had these dreams. No one can interpret them, but I'm told that you can. And Joseph, Joseph emphatically points away from himself in verse 16. Look at verse 16. He says, it is not in me. It is certainly not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, or more literally, God can give an answer of peace. Joseph explains that both dreams are saying that seven prosperous years will be followed by seven years of famine. Now, a seven-year famine in a subsistence culture is a very big deal. People are depending on each and every harvest to survive. This is big news. And then three times, Joseph gives the theological interpretation, the theological perspective on this news. Verse 25, he says, God has revealed, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he, God, is about to do. Verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he, God, is about to do. Verse 32, the thing is fixed by God, and God, God will shortly bring it 
about. Do you see the interpretation? It's God's sovereign reign, God's sovereign rule over it all. That's Joseph's perspective. And that perspective does not produce fatalism in Joseph. He doesn't respond with, Que sera, sera. What will be, will be. No, he suggests an active response to God's sovereign plans. Build a reserve of grain to prepare for the coming famine. And his proposal is so wise and so right and so good that in verse 38, Pharaoh says, okay, you do it. You do it, Joseph. Quote, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then, and then the great reversal happens, beginning in verse 40. Over uh, you, you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you, Joseph, command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you, Joseph. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he, Pharaoh, set him, Joseph, over all the land of Egypt. And you see the amazing, startling, shocking great reversal here, don't you? Joseph goes from unjustly imprisoned slave to now, now people are commanded to bow their knee before him. Now he's given Pharaoh's signet ring, his stamp of authority, his decision-making power. Now he's clothed in fine linen, no slaves' rags here, even given a gold chain and a wife of nobility, as we read on. He's given a wife of some nobility, and they have two sons. Look at verse 51. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Manasseh sounds in Hebrew like the word forget, or make to forget, for Joseph said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Verse 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim. Ephraim sounds like the Hebrew for fruitful. For, he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. A great reversal. The seven good years come. And the seven good years go, and the seven years of famine arrive, and the account ends in verse 57. Look at verse 57. All the earth, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. I don't think Hollywood could write a better rags to riches story. But what does it mean? Why is it here in our Bibles? Well, let's think first of what it does not mean. This passage is not saying, work hard and God will favor you and you will rise to the top like Joseph. 
work hard, God will be with you, and you will succeed. You will have success. That's not what this is teaching. I mean, imagine with me, imagine there's a young man from the ghetto who studies hard, gets into a top school, becomes an investment banker on Wall Street, makes more money than he knows what to do with, then is a rising political star, and he rises all the way to the office of the vice presidency of the United States. He has wealth, position, and power, just like Joseph. But the young man in this scenario does not have God, does not know Jesus Christ, love Jesus Christ, or follow Jesus Christ. Would you call that a success story? Maybe by an American definition of success, but not a biblical one. That's why, that's why the names that Joseph gives to his two sons is actually quite significant. Joseph has spent most of his life in Egypt, most of his life at this point. He knows the language. He's absorbed in the culture. Pharaoh's even given him an Egyptian name. You'd think Joseph would have taken on an Egyptian, a fully Egyptian identity, and rejected his Hebrew identity. You'd think that, wouldn't you? I mean, Sung, my wife, she immigrated here from Korea when she was 10. She became a naturalized citizen in the U.S. when she was 19. Now, retaining your identity as an immigrant is very challenging. And when she came and she was naturalized as a citizen, she decided of a sort of American identity. And she took on the name Samantha. We kind of kid around with her that we don't know who Samantha is. But that's her actually legal name is Samantha. It's sort of the identity she took on after living so many formative years here in the U.S. Now, you'd think something similar would have happened to Joseph. Embrace fully his Egyptian identity and reject his Hebrew identity and reject the Hebrew God, reject the Hebrew or Jewish religion. But Joseph gives his sons Hebrew names. Manasseh, Ephraim. Those Hebrew names are showing Joseph's true allegiance. Those Hebrew names are showing that Joseph, Joseph still knows that Egypt is not his home, spiritually speaking. If you want a success story here, that's one place to look. But the passage does not mean work hard, God will be with you, and you will succeed materially. You might not. So what does then, what does this great reversal mean? Why is it in our Bibles? Well, think, think in two categories, two, two pieces to answer that question. Saving plans and a suffering servant. Saving plans and a suffering servant. One piece helps you interpret this world and one piece helps you interpret your life in this world. You see, the first thing to realize here is that Joseph is not the main character. The main character is 
God. And Joseph clues us into that three times, saying to Pharaoh in verse 25, God has revealed what he's about to do. Verse 28, God has shown what he's about to do. Verse 32, the thing is fixed by God. Those are pointers, clues, hints that we should be remembering that the main character is God himself. But what is God doing? What is he sovereignly doing here? Well, He's bringing about, you might say, his saving plans. In this case, saving people from famine, giving them the blessing of food. And this is significant in the, the storyline of Genesis. The theme, the, the thread, you might say, running through Genesis really is one of God's blessing. In Genesis 1, God blesses humanity. And then at the end, Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his sons. It's a story about God's blessing forfeited by sin in Adam and Eve. And God's blessing being regained by God's grace and God's mercy. And you might say the pinnacle of that theme in Genesis is in Genesis chapter 12, where five times God references blessing a guy named Abraham, who just happens to be Joseph's great grandfather. God promised to bless Abraham, make his name great, make his descendants into a great people, and through them, listen, through them bring blessing to all families, all peoples, all nations of the earth. Genesis 41 is an early installment on that blessing to the nations through Abraham's descendants. Genesis 41 is a down payment on that promise. That's what we saw in verse 57. All the earth, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph, great-grandson of Abraham, to buy grain. People from all around the known world at that time, all these nations, all these peoples survived the famine, received the blessing of food. Why? Because God, God had brought these, if you will, saving plans to bear through this descendant of Abraham. So we're seeing, catch this, we're seeing a, a down payment an early installment on the promise of blessing to the nations through Abraham's offspring, a promise that culminates in Jesus Christ. See, what God did through Joseph, saving temporally, that's what God did through Jesus, saving eternally all who believe. Through, through Joseph, God brings short-term salvation of food. Through Jesus, God brings long-term salvation, you might say, of the bread of life, His Son. And God's saving plans, God's saving plans in Christ are still being worked out today, right now, and they will be until Christ returns. That means nothing in our world is out of control. Nothing in this pandemic is out of control. Nothing is happening just according to the, the whims of a president or by the whims of a governor 
or by the whims of a county health board. It might feel that way to you, but nothing is happening outside of God's control. Everything is happening, listen, everything is happening precisely according to God's saving plans. So whether you feel like the government right now is doing a fantastic job, or you feel like the government's kind of overreaching, or you're somewhere in between, or whether you feel like the coronavirus is incredibly, extremely deadly, or you feel like this is some kind of media-fueled frenzy, or you're somewhere in between, regardless, friends, here's the perspective. Here's the interpretation you must have. God is advancing his saving plans in the earth and right here. And he'll do so until all things are brought under Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. That's how you should interpret this world. God advancing his saving plans. But but how does God do that here? How does God do that in this passage? Well, he does so through the exaltation of his suffering servant. Here, God advances his saving plans through the exaltation of his suffering servant, Joseph. In other words, Joseph is what we call a type. That just means he's showing something typical. He's showing a pattern, this pattern of reversal from from imprisoned slave to Pharaoh's right-hand man to save people from a famine. That pattern of humiliation leading to exaltation in the saving plans of God, that pattern finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. Joseph's great reversal points forward, points beyond itself ultimately to the great reversal we see in Jesus Christ, where God the Son took on the ultimate humiliation, leaving eternal glory to be born as a baby, the divine one being born as an infant. And then he was humiliated in his life through insults and rejection, leading all the way to his crucifixion, all the way to being stripped naked and crucified as a criminal, though he had done nothing wrong. For he was being crucified. He was bearing the the death penalty, you might say, for what we have done wrong. He was dying for our sins. He was dying as a substitute. He was He was bearing the wrath of God and the justice of God in our place that we might be reconciled to God. And if you've not trusted Jesus Christ like that, I urge you to do so right now. Jesus was humiliated for our sins, then raised and exalted for our salvation. You see, where Joseph where Joseph was raised to Pharaoh's right hand to rule over Egypt, Jesus was raised to God's right hand to rule over the universe. Where people bow down now before Joseph, 
Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Are you seeing how Jesus, uh, Joseph rather is a kind of type? He's something typical. He is a pattern, you might say. God is advancing his saving plans here through the exaltation of his suffering servant, Joseph, who is pointing forward to the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And that should help us interpret our own lives. That sets a paradigm for those who follow Christ. That sets a pattern for followers, disciples of Jesus. A paradigm I would sum up in two exhortations. First, expect the humiliation now in Christ. Expect the suffering now in Christ. And secondly, anticipate the exaltation to come in Christ. Let me explain. First, see, uh, rather, expect, expect the humiliation now. Expect the suffering now in Christ. As 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us, the Apostle Peter says, Do not be surprised, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, he says, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Did you catch that? Don't be surprised, he says. There's nothing wrong with you, nothing wrong with your faith, nothing wrong with your God. Don't be surprised by your sufferings now, the humiliation now. You're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. You, as, you are, as it were, sharing in the humiliation of Christ, you might say. You're following the pattern laid out by your Savior. Sharing in Christ's sufferings on the pathway of discipleship. And that sets for us a right expectation, a right interpretation, helping us not be surprised, as Peter says, not be shocked, not be, not be taken aback when suffering comes. But we can say when it does come, when trials come, we can then say, I was expecting that in the pattern of following my Savior, the pattern we see in Joseph, who points forward to Jesus. But when the difficulties come, don't think, friends, don't think you are like Joseph, left in prison. The cupbearer forgot, uh, forgot about Joseph in prison, but God never forgot about Joseph, and he never forgets about you. He will never leave you, we're told, and never forsake you. Jesus said, the hairs of your head are all numbered. He said, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your Father's will, and you are worth more than many sparrows. He's with you. But you can expect the humiliation now, the suffering now, so that, Peter says, so that you may rejoice in Jesus' glory, in his exaltation when he returns. So secondly, then, anticipate. Anticipate the exaltation to come 
in Christ. See, in Christ, for those who are in union with Jesus, those who are spiritually joined to Jesus, you are already exalted in a sense, not with wealth, position, and power like Joseph here, but you've already been raised with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2. And yet, our, our experience of that exaltation in Jesus is not yet complete, is it? And we're experiencing that now in this time of difficulty and some suffering and pain, this time of uncertainty, sickness around us and, and death even. Look, the believer is raised with Christ now, but you will share in his exaltation to come when he returns. You will rejoice when his glory is revealed, Peter said. So there's an interpretation for your own life. There's a perspective to have. Humiliation now leading to exaltation in Jesus because you are joined to him and following him on the pathway he has blazed for us. And here's why that matters. Here, here's how that's helpful to you. Knowing, friends, knowing the sure exaltation to come in Jesus will help you persevere through the humiliation now with Jesus. It's like this. It's a well-known story of Florence Chadwick, who was the first woman to swim the English Channel. Well, in 1952, Florence Chadwick decided to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast, a distance of 26 miles. She set off on a very foggy day, and she started to swim, couldn't see through the fog. After 15 long hours of swimming, she finally begged to be taken out and was put into the boat. A couple of minutes later, she realized she was a mere half mile away from the California coast. When asked later why she quit, Chadwick said, it is because I couldn't see anything. If I could have just seen the coastline, I know I would have made it. Well, two months later, she got back in the water. And not only did she complete the swim from Catalina Island to the California coast, she broke the woman's record for that distance and broke the men's record by two and a half hours. The second time she swam it, it was even foggier than the first time. And when asked about this later, she said the following, I kept a picture in my mind of the shoreline. Even though I couldn't see it with my eyes, it was ever before me. As long as I live for the picture in my mind, as long as I kept living for the picture in my mind, I could keep slogging through the fog of my challenge. That's the difference that this can make for you. That's why you must have this perspective. Keep the shoreline ever before you. Keep the exaltation in Christ 
when he returns ever before you. Keep the shoreline that Jesus purchased for you. Never lose sight of that shoreline. Always keep before you that picture in your mind of that coming exaltation, rejoicing in his glory because Jesus is raised, Jesus is exalted, and you are in Jesus. Keep that before you and you will keep slogging through the fog of your challenges right now. At the outset of this sermon, I asked, what interpretation are you using? What perspective do you bring to suffering? What framework do you use to understand it and, and process it? That God has forgotten you, maybe. Or that God is mistreating you. Or that God is not with you anymore. Or that God might be punishing you for your sins. Or that God's promises don't apply to your life anymore. Or that maybe that God is not really who you thought he was. Listen, Genesis 41 gives you the right interpretation. The right perspective. That God is advancing right now. His saving plans in the earth through the exaltation of his suffering servant, Joseph here, who points to Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. That gives you perspective on this world and perspective on your own life. As you follow Jesus, you share in that humiliation, those sufferings. Don't let them surprise you. And you will share, you most definitely will share in his exaltation to come, his glory when he returns. And that, friends, can keep you slogging forward through the fog right now. Let's pray to that end. Father, I know I need this perspective and I imagine those who are watching need it as well, or we will need it sometime soon. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would help us to glean from this passage. We would see that you are advancing your saving purposes in the earth. You are sovereignly doing so right now, and nothing and no one will stop you. Help us to believe that. Help us to interpret our world around us like that. And help us also to glean from what happens to Joseph and what happened to our Savior that we might interpret our own lives following the Savior correctly. That we might have the right interpretation right now. Help us to not be surprised by trials, suffering, or difficulty to not think something strange were happening to us, but to know and keep going because we shall rejoice when his glory is revealed. Help us to do this, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.